Hello and welcome to the Hormones in Harmony podcast. I'm your host, Vivian Allred, naturopathic nutritional therapist and hormone enthusiast. If you want to learn how to rebalance your female hormones, regulate your menstrual cycle and reclaim your vitality, then you are in the right place. Each week I will be delving into different conditions such as PCOS, endometriosis, infertility, hypothyroidism, acne and hair loss. Stay tuned for interviews with expert guests, Q&As and solo episodes that are all intended to help you move from hormonal chaos to hormonal harmony. If you'd like to submit a question for me to answer on the podcast, then you can email them to hormonesinharmony at gmail.com. The information shared on this podcast is intended for educational purposes only and is not designed to replace the advice of your health practitioner. That said, let's get into today's episode. Hello guys, welcome back to episode number 48 of the podcast. It's another solo episode today with Q&A from two ladies. One of them is struggling with um, coming off the pill and the other one is struggling with, let me see, sinus issues that are reoccurring regardless of what she's done. So if I plan this correctly, this is a week prior to Christmas, just over a week to go on the countdown right now. And this is just a reminder to enjoy yourself, just live in the moment, be present with family and over the new year as well. Try not to stress too much about food. Just really, if you want something, just have it and just get on with your life and don't feel like you have to completely binge over the the next couple of weeks and then start fresh and get back on the bandwagon, quote unquote, in January. That being said, there are a subset of people who it is advisable for them to try and stick with um, a diet or protocol as much as possible especially those maybe with autoimmunity or gluten sensitivity. I know that we spoke about that last week with Abby Foreman. So if you're working with someone, they probably had that conversation with you. And just remember that it's one or multiple, a few days of your year or of your life for either instances. If you're eating a few more processed foods and sugars and cakes, then it's not going to completely derail all of your efforts. But then again, if you're needing to be on a restricted protocol or a plan for an actual health issue that you're working to overcome, then it is just one or a few days of your life where you need to be strong and be strict and try and resign from some of those things. So it's all very bio-individual. You just need to do what's best for you. If you're not sure, speak to your practitioner. Um, My clients, if you're listening, ask me if you'd like what, what you should do. But for the majority of people, something here and there isn't going to completely derail of your efforts but just don't really take it to the extreme and binge out on everything because you will probably feel terrible maybe add some digestive enzymes some adrenal support eat mindfully chew your food well um the next day maybe add extra magnesium some n-acetylcysteine if you've had had alcohol because that helps with liver detoxification so you're not punishing your body you don't have to start training for a marathon the next day because you've eaten a mince pie or something but you you can support your body in ways like I say with PCOS when you have something like um, a huge baked potato or um, a plate of pasta you don't need to go to the gym to burn it off but you could go for a walk and keep the rest of your day relatively low carb so it's all about balance and this should be a lifestyle it shouldn't just be a diet that you're on for three months and then you just go back to how you were eating previously you want to make sustainable choices so do what's right for you 
Okay, so that out of the way, just wanted to make that little point and hope that helps someone in this situation who's a little bit anxious. So the first question today is from Katie, who's 23 and from New York. She said, I've dealt with crazy menstrual cycles and hormones since I first got my period at age 12. She got severe acne at 15 and was put on the birth control pill to stop it. It didn't help. It did help, but not as much as she hoped. And she then went on Accutane a couple of times and it helped a little bit, but it was only temporary. And she was on the birth control pill for four years and then started to develop mental health issues, mood swings, and didn't feel like she had control over her emotions. During this time, she was diagnosed with PMDD and she was put on antidepressants. She stopped taking her birth control pill out of pure laziness, which I love. And a couple of months into seeing a therapist regularly, her doctor every week, and not leaving the house, she was slowly feeling like her old self again. And around this time, she'd been through a breakup, which was very stressful. So she didn't correlate to the birth control pill causing these mental health issues and emotional changes, which most people don't, and we'll cover that. And she's not been on birth control since that point, but she did started taking it a few months ago. It's helped with her skin, but on her latest period, she started feeling those emotions coming back again. Irritability, crying all the time, can't handle her emotions well. And it scared her because she started feeling like she was spiraling out of control again. And she went back on birth control to help her skin and for contraception as well, because she's not wanting to have children anytime soon. She says, from listening to this podcast, I've already learned that how I was feeling before was certainly from birth control and it does mess with your body in huge ways. She's scared to come off birth control in fear that her skin and acne gets worse again. And she wants to make sure that she's being responsible when it comes to sex and preventing pregnancy. Her skin and acne is a combination of cystic and little bumps that create horrible texture in her skin. This process has been really hard because she'd not heard of anyone going through issues with the birth control pill before and she felt like it was just her. Her friends were all fine with it and her mum went through similar things when she was going through menopause. They both started taking a progesterone cream and it actually helps them in terms of mood and anxiety. She says, I'm aware some of these things could come from the foods that she's eating I stay away from gluten and dairy because it makes me tired, bloated and have headaches and stomachache for days after. But she's not super strict when she goes out with her friends. She takes a pro and prebiotic every morning. Breakfast would be pea protein shake with spinach, almond butter, berries. Unless she's out to eat or has time in the morning, she'll make eggs. Lunch, she'll typically do the same shake or if if she's in a rush or she'll have a turkey burger, avocado, salad and vegetables. Dinner would be salmon, a turkey burger, chicken with sweet potatoes, brown rice, naturally gluten-free pasta, avocados and vegetables. She sometimes grazes through the day on almond flowers, crackers, carrots, green apples and she's very active, working out three to six times a week with yoga, hiking and weightlifting. I know you have mentioned getting tests done before, which I'm completely open to, just unaware of which test would be best for me, especially one that can gauge why my PMS is so awful. I'm so sorry for this long post, but I understand. Um, I appreciate the detail. And again, thank you so much for all the advice on the podcast. It has already helped me in so many different ways. So yeah, it's a lot of information. So thank you, Casey. Um, 
we'll start off with the birth control issue and the connection between birth control and mental health for those who maybe don't even have an idea that that's a factor it definitely is and if you want to learn more definitely check out episode 23 of the podcast where i interview holly griggs ball and her she we talk about her book sweeten in the pill there's another book called beyond the pill by dr jolene brighton both of which i highly recommend for educating yourself on this some people are more genetically predisposed to have a negative reaction to birth control specifically those with the comt or compt genetic mutation they're also called snips so i'll use those interchangeably this can impact estrogen metabolism and estrogen detoxification and breakdown in the body i have this i have this mutation a lot of people do i have a double mutation so i've got two variations of this some people can just have one and this is why i became severely depressed from the very high estrogen pill that i was taking at one point which was dianet that is sometimes recommended for those with pcos and it's very high in estrogen i think it's one of the strongest and i got depressed in literally a few days so that is how powerful it can be and you think a little tiny pill can't really do anything but it really does it changes so many things in the system and on that note if a tiny little pill can make such a huge shift in the body some doctors say that diet doesn't affect anything but if you're putting food into your system three plus times a day how is that not impacting it so that's just a little side tangent and my thoughts and you can't change genes you're stuck with your genes for good for bad but you can change the expression of the gene so that is epigenetics and we know that magnesium and b6 support comt function so you could have perfect genetics you may not have a comt mutation but it could be kind of um, gummed up a little bit and not functioning optimally because of a deficiency in those nutrients and on the other hand you could have a genetic snip in this gene and it could be working fine because you're fully healthy you've got enough nutrients on board so that's how important um, epigenetics are and your environment in telling your genes whether they should be active or not so the people who you're living with or the people who have been on the pill before or other types of hormonal birth control they may not have genetic issues they may have actually mental health problems but they're just not showing that or talking about them they could be crippled with anxiety every day you just have no idea what's going on or they may just be a little bit suboptimal mood and they just think it's normal they think it's part of getting older um they're not at school anymore so maybe their personalities change and that's not the case it often is the pill and that's why people can't correlate the issues that they're having with the pill because sometimes they start much later so you may go through a honeymoon phase where everything's fine maybe your skin's a little bit clearer maybe your periods have lightened or they're more regular now um, just bearing in mind that it's not a real period it's a withdrawal bleed and that's why they don't correlate it that's why doctors can miss the negative reactions of the pill because maybe your symptoms only started six months 12 months or two years after the birth control pill and it could just be an accumulation of nutrient deficiencies and inflammation that the pill's causing. We know that the pill and other types of hormonal birth control have impacts on the gut. We know how important the gut and brain connection is. If the gut's unhealthy, there's a common saying, fire in the gut, fire in the brain. So there could be some dysbiosis going on caused by the pill or caused by other factors. 
that's just increasing your risk of depression, anxiety, low mood as well. We It's been shown that the pill acts as a low-dose antibiotic in the gut, so it can really deplete your good bacteria, favour the growth of bad bacteria. It increases inflammation, inflammatory cytokines in the body, it disrupts the immune system, and the nutrient deficiencies alone can cause systemic issues with your energy, with your detoxification. We need B vitamins and zinc for neurotransmitter production. And these are some of the key nutrients that the pill depletes. And it shuts down our natural fluctuations in sex hormones. So throughout the month, it's ideal for women to cycle their hormones. So in the first half of the cycle, estrogen should be dominant. So that spikes high and that triggers ovulation. And then the second half of the cycle, estrogen should kind of taper off a little bit and progesterone should be the dominant hormone. But when you're on the pill, this gets shut down. The the natural hormone production and natural cycling that happens is just shut down and you're just on a, a static level of synthetic hormones all month long. When you have the sugar pill, you drop the hormones and that's what triggers the withdrawal bleed too. So non-hormonal birth control pill options and this isn't medical advice so speak to your practitioner and whoever you're working with and make sure that it is the right decision for you to either remain on the pill i just wanted you to be aware of the negative side effects and potential risks some things to pay attention to but there are so many options for non-hormonal birth control pill and again on the episode with holly we talk about that and there's a specific episode with lisa hendricks and jack it's episode 29, which I'll link all of these in the show notes as well. So you can quickly go to them and listen. But there are definitely options. So don't feel like the pill or any hormonal interventions are the only solution. They're absolutely not. You can successfully avoid pregnancy um, and you can time intercourse correctly for pregnancy, just depending on what you choose and what's right for you at this moment in time. Um, my personal preference would be the fertility awareness method where you start to understand your body and identify the fertile window in your cycle, which is maximum five to six days of the month. Because a female body, when you ovulate, that's when the female body is fertile. When there's an egg present in the fallopian tube, the rest of the month, you're not fertile. But what extends that period would be the sperm that can live in the body for up to five days. So in total, six, seven days maximum of the month, you are potentially fertile fertile and can get pregnant whereas the other three plus weeks of the month you're not fertile and it's impossible for you to get pregnant and we're just not never told that we're scared into thinking that you could fall pregnant any single day of the month and that's not true and that's why people take drastic measures and go on the pill and struggle with health issues for years of their life because they're just petrified of potentially falling pregnant so fertility awareness is one and you would use a combination of cervical mucus changes, identifying and tracking that, um, identifying when it becomes more egg white, cervical mucus, and in combination with ideally a basal body temperature to track your temperature every morning and see when there's a spike and increase, and that would show that you've ovulated. And after that time, you wouldn't be um, you wouldn't be potentially fertile. And another option could be a copper coil. I have a blog post on the effective non-hormonal alternatives to the birth control pill, which I'll also link that cover the issues with birth control in more detail and the options that you do have. 
obviously there's barrier methods like condoms but a copper coil could be a good thing for some people as well the issues with that is that it can create local inflammation in the pelvis area and the pelvic um, part of the body can just cause inflammation it can cause copper toxicity and high copper levels which can throw zinc levels out of whack and have a knock-on effect on immunity and other symptoms like fatigue and anxiety it can reject and repel itself out of the body and it can get lost so there would be the negative sides to the copper coil but it can work really well for some people it's non-hormonal so it works to the copper ions work to kill off the sperm or prevent them from fertilizing the egg so it's not going to shut down ovulation many women still ovulate on the copper coil so look into that and speak with your doctor one thing as well if you have heavy painful periods the copper coil can actually increase heaviness flow and it can cause more cramping so maybe not a good option if that's an issue for you currently and you mentioned using progesterone just as and when you felt anxious that's not really a good idea progesterone is a hormone so you shouldn't just be self-treating like that and it's not as bad with your mum because she's postmenopausal, so she doesn't really have fluctuating hormones anymore. But for you, especially if you're on the pill and you're interfering with the hormonal, the hormonal levels that you already have, and you're just doing it maybe in the wrong time of your cycle, because naturally progesterone is only produced after ovulation and in that second part of your cycle, so the one to two weeks before your period. That's the only time that you should be using progesterone. Before that, it's just really not advised and you can actually delay or inhibit ovulation. You can mess with the efficacy of the birth control pill as well. So work with someone and if you're on the pill, you, you shouldn't be doing that anyway. So maybe keep this as something that you do when off the pill and it needs to be done in a correct and consistent pattern as well if you're cycling. So you'd start that on the day after ovulation so on a 28 day cycle that would be around day 14 and you take that for 10 to 14 days or when your period starts you discontinue so i just wanted to make that point just to make sure that you know what you're doing and i don't want that to be impacting the the birth control that you're also taking and there are other drivers of acne the pill can worsen a lot of them like your gut health but because you're started in puberty and it improves with the pill it does sound hormonal in nature which is very common and it doesn't always have to be the lower part of your face with hormonal acne it can be everywhere and otherwise and opposite as well it could be lower part of your face acne could be driven by poor gut health or inflammation for me it's inflammation and food sensitivities particularly histamine rich foods and it's common not necessarily normal to have acne during your teenage years but most people typically grow out of it. And it's because androgens or these male hormones are higher at this time. And from what I've read, you'll have to correct me if I'm wrong, you had up to four years off the pill and you had acne the whole time. I'm a little bit confused as to what's going on there, but it's common for acne to flare up after stopping the pill. So you do need to give yourself a good three, six, nine months off the pill to really determine whether acne is going to clear naturally because what happens with the pill is known as an androgen rebound where your hormones have been suppressed for the months or years or decades that you've been on the pill 
and when you take that pill away your hormones have to relearn how to communicate again and produce male hormones and other hormones so it can go a little bit overdrive for the first few months typically starting at three months and it can last up to a year so you need to make sure and rule that out that the androgen rebound had stopped and it's a definite it's a definite acne from something else and if yours continued it could be due to elevated androgens in general maybe something like pcos i'm not sure if you've ever been diagnosed with this it isn't a time to diagnose it within the first six to nine months off the pill because it could just be a pulse pill issue and the book beyond the pill talks about that in a bit more detail it's known as post birth control syndrome and this is a common time that people do get diagnosed with pcos or they're told you have this hormonal condition so you need to go back on the pill or if you're trying to conceive you need to go straight to ivf and it's really it's really bad practice and it should you should allow your body to settle a little bit before you make any diagnosis or any rash decisions and testing wise there could be a few things that are impacted like nutrient status so checking just basic nutrient levels regularly if you remain on the pill but when you stop the pill also looking at nutrient levels too particularly vitamin d being important at this time of year it's not necessarily depleted by the pill but it can be a factor in hormonal acne hormone regulation inflammation in the body as well if you do decide to come off the pill eventually then a Dutch test may be a good thing at that six or six plus month mark after stopping the pill when things are regulated a little bit or waiting until your cycle returns and doing a test then that would look at your androgens in a bit more detail, not just testosterone like blood work can do because sometimes this is normal and sometimes it's actually low levels on blood work and that's where people can be missed for a potential driver of acne and PCOS for example so a dutch test would be great it would look at your cortisol levels so the nutrients as well i love that one that's a urine test that you can do pretty much all over the world you do it in at your home but it is a pay out of pocket test which is um, a little bit annoying it's not covered by any insurance in a lot of cases and definitely not the nhs in the uk and whilst you're still on the pill if you're thinking and planning transitioning off just some general hormone support will aid the problem aid the uh, situation so cruciferous vegetables would be great having them every day this is good for just general health long term but really upping things like your broccoli your kale your cauliflower and these all contain sulfur which helps your liver to process environmental toxins just general metabolic waste but especially estrogen which can be remain in the body after stopping the pill that synthetic estrogen it can take a while for it to get out flax seeds flax seeds can be helpful to help with sex hormone binding globulin the pill increases levels of sex hormone binding globulin this is a sponge in the bloodstream that soaks up excess or free hormones and that's why it can clear up symptoms like oily skin and acne and can sometimes prevent hair loss from occurring and then when you stop the pill this can lower Sometimes it can remain elevated long term, but one thing to increase sex hormone binding globulin if you on blood tests see that it's low would be flax seeds that are also high in fiber, which helps with bowel motility. And that's one way that you get these excess hormones and toxins from the system as well. 
liver support would be great i like herbal teas for this um particularly dandelion coffee or dandelion tea in the us you have the brand dandy blend i'll link to in the show notes that's just something that you mix with water dandelion is amazing for liver detoxification support and that bitter flavor really kickstarts the gallbladder and the liver to pump out bile which cleanses the intestines and gets things out of the the stool and the intestines as well for sigmatic do some mushroom elixirs reishi mushroom can be a good androgen blocker and can help with that post pale androgen rebound if that's the case for you spearmint tea helps to reduce androgens two cups per day is the the tested and um science-backed amount to have and they're all caffeine free so it could be a good option to have i would avoid caffeine as much as possible as well during this time just to not stress your system in any other ways and if you are a coffee fan then the dandelion coffee tastes pretty similar could so could be a good option gut health optimizing that whilst you're planning on coming off the pill for those few months or definitely stepping up when you come off the pill in terms of probiotics maybe a factor i like the spore forming probiotics from microbiome labs like megaspore hu 58 these could be good options i think you do need to work with the practitioner to get those though so maybe um reaching out to someone to see if they stock them and because the pill has antibiotic like effects of the gut it could be that you have some dysbiosis going on so if you continue with skin issues then i always look to the gut as the root of the problem because your internal skin is pretty similar to the external skin so you can imagine having inflammation and irritation in that area that can spread and result on your reflection and your skin's like a magic mirror into what's going on in the gut as well i like the gi map to look at gut health and rule out things like candida overgrowth which can be an issue for long-term birth control pill use estrogen synthetic estrogen especially increases yeast levels in the body it could have just disrupted your immune system made your gut a little bit more leaky and inflamed topical skincare my friend sarah sumik is the the queen on this subject and i've had her on the podcast twice talking all about the topical skincare for acne prone skin and definitely check out her website healthy skin glows and on instagram but the key takeaways are not to overstrip your skin with scrubs and harsh chemicals and products and acids and peels that will make your skin become more sensitive it disrupts the skin barrier so you're more likely to break out and it causes your skin to overproduce oil because you're stripping it and drying it out so much and using non-toxic products not using things like coconut oil on your skin which can clog pores um gentle chemical or physical exfoliants a few times a week and working with ones that your skin reacts positively to if you have normal to oily skin um chemical exfoliants could be good i personally find benefit from the sunday riley ufo oil and that's a nice herbal blend it's got some salicylic acid in there which helps to unclog pores and a generally recommended and safe well tolerated products would be manuka honey which you can consume internally and you can make as a face mask a couple of times a week it's very soothing and very antibacterial it's calming it's a humectant meaning that it draws moisture to the skin rather than drying it out and we just spoke about the issues with that 
and I'll link to my podcast episode on skin health covering the 10 steps to clear skin episode number 28 that goes into other factors like thyroid issues and stress and infections in a bit more detail so just do whatever feels comfortable for you okay so this would be my advice if you want to remain on the pill optimizing your nutrient intake avoiding those inflammatory foods that you know that you can react to managing your stress and then if you want to do the opposite and transition off the pill without a huge acne breakout then implementing some of those things preparing your body for a little bit if you feel more comfortable doing that optimizing your nutrients taking some liver support taking some probiotics and then just riding out the the waves because it may be a little bit tricky and you can only do so much because the synthetic hormones can really wreak havoc on the system so just put the the steps in place and just think of the long-term benefits and it should only be a short period of time do some testing a few months after if necessary but there's always a reason for your symptoms your symptoms are messages from your body so just don't cover them up don't mask them really tune in find maybe foods that you are sensitive to or work with someone who can figure this out for you as well and hold your hand throughout the whole process and for anyone listening if you need one-on-one help and UK too if you want to chat a little bit further I do offer free 30-minute troubleshooting calls and we'll be taking on clients in January so if you're interested in finally getting some answers addressing things from the root cause then get in touch you can schedule that there'll be a link in the show notes or just check out my website as well so question two is from Amelia who's 23 she says hi Vivian My issue isn't necessarily hormone related, so I hope it's okay, but I have recurring sinus infections and it's so frustrating. I haven't always had them. They probably started around four years ago when I was at first went to uni. I don't remember a particular trigger, but I'm sure stress may be a factor. I've previously worked with another nutritional therapist in London, and although my symptoms like headaches and bloating improved, my sinus issues remained. I was hopeful going dairy-free would improve this, but I only saw a slight shift. It's particularly bad when I get a cold or flu around three to four times a year because it goes straight to my sinuses and chest. I have tried medicated nasal sprays and antihistamines, but like I said, I haven't found anything to make a big difference. Diet-wise, I eat gluten and dairy-free for my gut health, lots of vegetables, healthy fats and proteins. Breakfast would be homemade banana pancakes with egg, almond milk, and then topped with peanut butter. Lunch would be leftovers from the night before. So maybe something like roast chicken and vegetables, chickpea pasta with a tomato sauce and chorizo, etc. I'm not a snacker. I'm not sure if it's related, but my sleep is also pretty terrible. My mood is quite low. And I think my sleep's affected because of breathing difficulties and the fact that I need to urinate three to four times in the night. I have the bladder of a squirrel. I hope that's enough information for you to give me some insight. Thank you. Okay, so I have a few ideas, Amelia. First, starting with your diet and potential food triggers. So it's great that you've seen some benefits with other parts of the body, but there's obviously something continuing the problem with your sinuses. And histamine in the diet can be an issue and a trigger for sinus-related issues and any respiratory problems. Could be literally any symptom in the body, but particularly anything allergy type, um, an allergy type symptom. I would recommend keeping a food journal to see if you can find any triggers 
and noticing if it's worse some days, worse after meals, does your nose start running? Do you get any like tickly sensations? Or are there some days when your your sinuses are pretty good and they're much better? So it's hard for me to give you specific foods that may be a problem because everyone's very different. So you need to try and pay attention and not just ignore it and take nasal sprays to mask it. Really noticing when it gets worse, when it gets better, keeping a note on your phone, making a journal and just try and track and see what happens. And histamine is a natural component of the immune system. It's released when there's signs of danger or stress, like a bug bite or food sensitivity or stress can release histamine and that causes swelling and redness and itchiness in the body and can cause inflammation. There are certain foods that can add to that histamine load. There would be spinach and chocolate and fermented foods, alcohol, vinegars, cured or aged meats. So check if you are eating some of these things regularly. I saw in your food diary, I know it's just a snapshot, but banana, peanut butter, certain vegetables like spinach and aubergine or eggplant, tomatoes, dried or cured meats like the chorizo and leftovers. They're pretty high in histamine, so it may be worth a try. And that was just on one day as well. So you could just be eating a lot of histamine-rich foods. And sadly, they are some of the most healthiest foods out there, which is the frustrating thing. And the way to tell if they're an issue for you would be a short-term elimination of these foods followed by a few days that are very high in histamine. So for the next week, two weeks ideally, you'd cut out a lot of these foods. And there's plenty of others, and I have a blog post on this showing the high and low histamine foods to choose from. So you're not going to feel deprived or anything. And it doesn't need to be a complete avoidance. Unlike other food sensitivities, you can just reduce them and you should see a big difference. If you don't see a huge difference after the two weeks, then you can pretty much rule it out. And when you do the higher histamine days, if your symptoms don't get noticeably worse, then it may not be an issue for you. I'm just putting ideas out there. But I, just the clients I work with and for my own personal experience, I know that it can be a factor and just something to rule in and rule out. And gut health could also be an issue as well. So your previous bloating symptoms, although they have improved, there may be an underlying imbalance in your gut that's driving the ongoing infections and regular colds and flus and sinus issues because areas in the guts like the mucous membrane if they're infected if they're inflamed then that can spread to other mucous membranes of the body particularly the bladder and the vaginal tract the oral microbiome and the the nasal sinus microbiome and mucosa as well um, candida and yeast tend to travel systemically throughout the body like parasites and things they tend to stay pretty local in the gut so there may be a long-term chronic yeast overgrowth in the system a gi map stool test may indicate that i don't see it's the best for systemic infections or even yeast i prefer to use an organic acid test which is a urine test that looks more systemically at yeast and fungal markers of the body and it's a little bit cheaper than the stool test as well which is good in the UK, it's around 250 or 280, something like that. So not massively extortionate, but could be a good thing. And it shows detox impairments. It shows nutrient deficiencies as well. So maybe a good test to look into. And you may not have any digestive symptoms anymore, but you could still have this underlying 
imbalance in your gut that's just really affecting your immune system and affecting your sinuses. And it seems crazy to have an issue with your gut that's affecting something on your face, but it's very common and something to pay attention to. Environmental wise, I'm not sure if you live in London or whether you just visited London for the nutritional therapist, but if you live in a city like London or you live near a farm that sprays crops with pesticides to a non-organic farm or any industrial estates, there may be pollution that's affecting your sinuses or environmental toxins with traffic. If you're in London, the tube, just air pollution in general isn't great these days. So maybe investing in an air filter in your bedroom. If possible, other areas of your house also, or if you work in an office, just the places that you spend the most time and you can get the most bang for your buck. You can even unplug it from your bedroom and take it to your living room in the evening. And so just try to have it near to you all the time. But if you're sleeping for a good eight hours, which you should be, you want to make sure that you're breathing cleaner. And we need healthier, we breathe in litres and litres of air every single day. And this is often overlooked. People just want to eat an organic diet, but they're breathing in all of these pollutants. So I think it's just as important as all of these other things. I think more research will come out about that soon. There's all of this scary stuff about particles. I've looked into a little bit, but I don't want to scare myself. So I've not really dug into that research. But if you're up for researching, then look at particular matter or something like that in air pollution that's linked to other things like dementia and Parkinson's, they have a strong correlation with environmental toxins. And how to find a good air filter, I'd recommend a HEPA filter or an activated charcoal filter and make sure to clean it regularly and you should be able to see the dust particles and buildup that's coming from your, your breathing air. And if you've noticed that your sinuses are worse or better in certain areas, this is also a big clue. So if you go and stay at someone else's house or you go on holiday and you don't have any problems, then it could be a local environment that's triggering for you, whether that is your work or your home. So it's worth keeping a journal of your food and your symptoms, not just with your food, but also with your environment and lifestyle and stress, all of those things as well. And when your symptoms started at university, this is a big factor. So whenever someone says, this is when my symptoms started, we need to go back there and investigate a little bit further. Yes, the stress of exams and moving potentially triggered things, but a sinus issue would be more environmental or food-wise. So did you start drinking a lot of alcohol or eating inflammatory foods around that time? Did you get food poisoning that impacted your gut health initially? Was your uni dorm mouldy? Was it old? Did you smell a musty smell? Were you in a big city that can provide some of these environmental pollutants and toxins? And mould is a big one. So mould, mouldy rooms, mouldy dormitories, a lot of them are because they're quite old buildings in the UK. So this has been on my radar lately and I found out that I have mould toxicity in my body and in my home because it's quite an old building and there was some flooding a couple of years ago and this could be ruled in or ruled out by a mycotoxin test it's a urine test the brand that i use or the company is great plains laboratory and you can get that in the us or the uk you will need a practitioner to order and interpret but if you've looked at everything else you've done all the diet things 
then mold could be a last place last puzzle piece and it was the same for me with my histamine issues i'm working through that currently and it doesn't matter whether the mold is visible or not it's often hidden so if you initially went into the room and could smell dampness and it just smelled a bit old smelled a bit old and um stale smelling then it could have been mold that's the issue but as you probably were when you stay in that environment for a long period of time your sense of smell acclimatizes and you eventually just stop smelling the problem and that's the danger and mold can actually suppress your immune system and suppress your senses your sense of smell so it can carry on proliferating and you don't see that as being a problem but definitely if you've noticed any leaks in your current home or in your uni dorm just think back if there's any dampness any mold visible mold black mold mildew all very important and 25% of the population have genes that can't detect some of these toxins like mold mycotoxins as an issue so they don't get cleared or processed in the body like the other people's do so that's why people can be living in the same environment like maybe your parents don't notice any issues with their health but you're really struggling with symptoms this can really be problematic and can cause arguments because people don't believe each other and they're thinking i'm fine so you it must just all be in your head it mustn't be the environment it must be something else the real goal for that if it is mold based is to get out of the environment and have a remediation on your home if it was a past exposure that's probably better because you are out of the environment but the mold may have colonized in your system in your gut in your mucous membranes it can really take over and stay in the body and just keep repopulating and mold it really likes to take over everything so that's why it releases these mycotoxins so it prevents other species and other bacteria from growing it likes to be dominant and that can happen in the body which is a little bit scary if your current home you identified that as being moldy then you would need to do some remediation or move out temporarily or permanently into a better place but if that's not an option for you if you want to just try some of these things to see if you feel better would be adding in like binders i like toxaprevent i think it's a us uk company i'm not sure if you can get that worldwide gi detox by botanical biobotanical research they're the same people who do the biocidin products or activated charcoal can also be an option to take daily away from meals because they can bind to certain minerals as well and see how you feel get the air filter like i'm recommended change your diet initially see if that helps if not really look into this side of things and it is more more and more prevalent these days i've had my eyes open to how much of a problem it is it is due to my research and the seminars and training that i've had certain countries are worse than others so the uk is really high risk because we're like on a floating island it's always damp and rainy and cloudy so that's a breeding ground for bacteria and mold and yeast some places in the us even the dry climates like arizona and texas it can still be an issue so it doesn't always have to be humid and rainy all of the time places that are flooded quite regularly or there's hurricanes so like florida and um, places on the coastline can also be a factor so it is more prevalent than you think and i'm going to get some more experts on the podcast to talk about it for my own benefit but also i know that there's going to be people out there listening and it's those with the chronic health issues so they're doing all the right things 
with diet and lifestyle and they're taking the supplements, they've worked on their gut, but there's these final remaining symptoms that they shouldn't be experiencing really, but there's something obviously going on that can be an issue. And mold can be a trigger for something called SIRS or chronic inflammatory response syndrome, CIRS. And this is when symptoms are persistent or recurring. Someone clears the gut infection, it comes back all the time. Other factors like heavy metals and stress and trauma can be an issue, but some of these environmental toxins can cause inflammatory response and your body is just on an overdrive and high alert all the time. So the smallest trigger, smallest change in environment, the smallest chemical it's exposed to in your laundry, it just overreacts with histamine-like responses, inflammation and immune dysfunction as well. And you could do some diffusing of essential oils. You can try things like neti pots, which you can buy on Amazon. You can just do that with salt water and you can rinse your nose and just make sure everything's being flushed through. There's certain sinus sprays that can help with the the removal of certain organisms and just help balance the microbiome of the nose and the sinuses. One brand's called Restore. They do a sinus spray. Well, there's other herbal formulas with some nice combinations of antimicrobial herbs, but I wouldn't rely on them too much because they can kill off too much bacteria and cause more problems in the long run. Same with gut. We don't just want to be killing and killing all the time. We want to give it a good period of time and then let our body rebalance naturally. And so start off with the histamine, like I said, the gut health, the air filter, and if it still doesn't improve, consider mold. And yeah, I hope you get some answers. As always, just let me know. Keep me updated. If you do do any of these things and you improve, I always love to hear what everyone tries and how they improved or not from that. And if anyone else has got any questions that you want to send into the podcast, definitely send that in to the email hormonesinharmony at gmail.com and I'll try my best to cover that in a future episode. But hope you have a lovely Christmas and New Year wherever you're listening from. Have a great time. Enjoy yourself live in the moment and I'll hope you join me back here next week for another episode.